0: Andy! I I was just thinking about you. Oh, darling, it's so good to hear your voice. Wait a minute, Andy.
1: Hi, and welcome to episode 17 of Andy's Treasure Trove. I'm your host, Andy Moore, and I'm mighty grateful to be able to bring you my long-awaited episode about the comedy team of Bob and Ray. Just a moment, I've been handed a note that ace reporter Wally Blue is standing by with a report. So please come in now, Wally Blue Wally
2: Ballew here
3: live from Andy's Treasure Trove and what a trove it is, friends, episodes, as far as the eye can see. This is Bob Elliott, and I'm hanging by my thumbs in Andy's Treasure Trove.
1: Yes, that was Mr. Bob Elliott himself, and you'll be hearing my interview with him in a moment, as well as a few comments about Bob and Ray by another comedy great, Mr. Tom Lehrer.
4: Now, I've been a a fan and admirer of Bob and Ray since the 40s when they were on WHDH in Boston.
1: Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding had a lot in common. They were both from the Boston area, raised in the Depression. They were both into radio as kids, and they thought of radio announcers as superstars they met when bob was working for whdh in boston performing the very important job of announcing the daily fish prices for the fisherman's news service for the atlantic coast then when bob had a morning show called Sunnyside up they needed someone to read newscasts and ray goulding came in for the job when they started chatting on the air they clicked they were really cutting edge in their satirical approach to radio you could say it was radio about radio They were considered hip back in the 40s and 50s, and one of the people doing work that was similar to theirs was Robert Benchley. The famous novelist Kurt Vonnegut wrote, It occurs to me that Bob and Ray's jokes are singularly burglar-proof. They aren't like most other comedians' jokes these days. They feature Americans who are almost always fourth-rate or below, engaged in enterprises which, if not contemptible, are at least insane. And while other comedians show us persons tormented by bad luck and enemies and so on, Bob and Ray's characters threaten to wreck themselves and their surroundings with their own stupidity. There's a refreshing and beautiful innocence in Bob and Ray's humor. Man is not evil, they seem to say. He is simply too hilariously stupid to survive. And this I believe. I didn't become aware of Bob and Ray until the late 1970s, when they had already been in radio and television for decades. Since then, I've collected over 2,000 Bob and Ray recordings, and it was a lot of fun going through them and selecting some of them for you to hear. And recently, I had the honor of chatting with Bob Elliott over the phone. He was in his home in Maine, just shy of his 90th birthday, and we had a really fun conversation.
3: It came out of Our being on the staff, as uh, in those days you were a staff announcer, if you got on the radio, which I did at 17, and so did Ray. Not uh, I didn't know him at that time. Then I went away after a couple, three years uh, in Boston on the radio. I went to war and came back, and uh, that's when I met Ray, who didn't have a job waiting for him, as I did, but he got a job at WHDH where we met. And uh, we just knocked around on the air, and the uh, simple thing is that we'd see something that amused us both, and uh, we'd take off on an idea like that. Well, most of the original stuff that got us called a team, which was still in Boston, we did it for five years there, most of it was, uh, was ad lib because we had newscasts, sportscasts, fun programs a lot of other shows to do in our shift, so the, uh, the ad-lib thing developed and, and uh, turned out to be a very good combination because uh, we had apparently the same kind of chemistry for same sense of humor.
0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's time for Matinee with Bob and Ray. Yes, time once again to join the fellas up at Friendly Rally. As we sit about chatting over the day's events and making with some side-splitting humor that's guaranteed to have you all over the floor. And now, direct from Friendly Valley for you, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience, here are Bob and Ray. Ah, yes, up here in Friendly Valley now. It's raining, but it's never raining on you. <coughs> on your spirits, though, here, maybe bothered by insects and things, and yet you feel so close to nature that you almost. You almost want to just never get up from this comfortable... Actually, this sofa isn't too comfortable. It's made of rocks, you know. I know it. And as we lie here looking out over a vista that carries the eye 50 or 60 miles beyond, one is filled with warmth and joy. No, that isn't warmth and joy we're filled with. What is that? What? What is that smell coming up from the back 40, Bob? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't been out there in a long time.
2: Jack Headstrong. Jack Headstrong. Jack Headstrong. Jack Headstrong. Jack Headstrong.
5: Jack Headstrong. 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 All American American.
2: Jay Montgomery Sting has kidnapped Betty and at the airfield in Hudson. Jack is talking to Uncle Jim. Over here, Uncle Jim. Hi, Jack. There's only one
6: thing for us to do now is to get into the airplane and take off. Jack,
2: I've warned you. Quiet, your... Billy. There is quiet, no time...
6: Ta- quiet, Uncle Jim. There's no time for that now. You're going to
2: chase Montgomery
6: Sting, Just tomorrow, Jack.
5: Uncle Jim. There's no time for that talk now.
2: Okay, Jack. Quiet,
5: warm... Billy. There is no time for that.
2: But Jack... Quiet,
5: Billy. Uncle Jim. Right,
2: Jack. Let's turn her over. Well, Billy's warmed it up, Jack. He was just trying to. Quiet, Jim. Let's climb aboard. Jack, you got to take the controls. Quiet, Billy. I think he is, Billy. He's sitting down in the pilot's chair. I'm taxiing
6: down the runway now. So quiet, everybody. Strap yourself in, Billy.
2: Grit the paste which makes your hands look dirty and gives you that honest working
5: man's appearance. Grit gives you dirty hands in a twinkling. Self-conscious tycoons use it every day in 48 states, Alaska and Hawaii. Women use it, too. I read from a letter sent to us by Miss Tilly Bergenheimer of Los Angeles. She says, I worked in an airplane plant during the war. I am sorry to say I was a receptionist for a vice president. All my girlfriends were spot welders. And when we had luncheon together, I was ashamed of my clean white hands. Then I heard of grit. And after that, I had as dirty hands as any of them. There's just one word of caution. Grit does not come off with soap. The only thing which will take grit off is smurge, the paste that removes grit. Smurge comes in a good-looking, unobtrusive gallon can. A few wipes with smurge, and the grit disappears. Unfortunately, the odor of smurge does not disappear. But we've
2: taken care of that. You can remove the odor of smurge with whiff spelled W-H-I-F-F, with the smurge remover in the handy two-gallon demi-john. Here's a timely reminder for housewives from the makers of Einbinder flypaper. Ladies, the time for spring house cleaning is upon us again. And I'm sure you're remembering to do all those obvious yearly chores, such as putting new insulation in the attic, patching broken windows, and changing the litter in the cat box. But have you ever thought that your flypaper may need replacing, too? Better check it today, and if it seems to have lost some of its original Sikkim, replace it with genuine Einbinder flypaper, the brand you've gradually grown to trust over the course of three generations.
3: We we got to New York on the basis of what we've been doing uh, ahead of the baseball game in Boston. They gave us a special half hour, and that got to be heard throughout New England. And by an agent in New York who came up and saw us and heard us and said, I think we could sell you to NBC. So we said, go ahead. And he did. And uh, in the summer of 51, we started out on NBC.
2: Hello again, ladies. It's time for one of Aunt Penny's true-to-life stories. And this is Danny sitting in Aunt Penny's sunlit kitchen. And what's that you just baked there, Aunt Penny? It looks delicious. Raisin cookies, Danny, Mm. and they're just lovely. Do you mind if I try one while I sit back to listen to today's story? Well, you certainly
7: can, and that's one thing about these cookies, ladies. As with anything made with chicken
2: fat, it's completely... Oh, Aunt Penny is right, ladies. You know that whenever you use chicken fat and you're baking or deep frying, you're really deep frying and baking.
7: That's right, and it is so digestible. They don't sit in your stomach like a half-dollar piece.
2: I'm going to have a couple more of these raisin cookies, Aunt Penny, while you tell us what today's story is all about.
7: Today's... Why don't you have some cookies, Danny, and I'll tell all the folks about today's story and what it's all about.
2: Is that sunlight filtering through the Venetian blind too strongly in your face, Aunt Penny?
7: No, but doesn't it show how spotless our kitchens are yes, here, Yes, and Danny? how
2: light and golden brown those raisin cookies are, too. Mm-mm. Aren't mm. they wonderful? They are delicious. Not well, well, Danny, you many can the...
7: help yourself to, to these and eat <laughs> as many as you want, because well, if it's in chicken fat, it's digestible. Well, now, what's today's...
3: We would create uh, some dialogue that we wrote but after the truth is that after uh, NBC had us on so many hours of the day that they advised and and uh, we knew we had to have uh, some writing help which they gave us I mean we couldn't just fall on the air like we often used to do and uh, see what came came out of it we had to have a more planned scripted, uh, half-scripted, anyway, type of a show.
6: Next, more hard luck stories. We've had our scouts searching the railroad and bus stations here for victims of misfortune who need a helping hand from our generous Bob and Ray organization.
2: We like to have them pour out their misery here on the show and Here's our first crestfallen figure, Mr. Stanley Waldrop of Duluth, Minnesota. Mr. Waldrop, I understand that you've just spent your life savings on a futile trip halfway around the world to hunt for your missing sister. That's right, Bob and Ray. I hunted all over Romania for
6: her. But it was uh,
2: just a year of my life wasted. Well, that is indeed tragic, Mr. Waldrop. And I assume your search centered on Romania because that's where your family came from? No, we lived in Minnesota for generations. But uh, when I was a little kid, my
6: friend next door had a baby sister. So I asked my folks why I couldn't have one, too. And they kept saying I already had a sister, but she was carried off by gypsies.
2: I see. And so you decided to hunt for her in Romania because that's where most of the gypsy tribes live, is that it?
6: Yeah, that's right. I I went from one gypsy camp to another, but I couldn't find anybody who had seen my sister, so I finally came home. You just got discouraged and gave up, huh? No, I didn't get discouraged exactly, but... When I told my story to one gypsy over there, he expressed the opinion that I probably never had a sister, say, and my parents just lied to me, so I'd stop bugging them. That sounded reasonable,
2: so I came home. Well, we know how difficult it must have been for you to face the obvious, Mr. Waldrop, but to ease your sorrow, our generous Bob and Ray organization wants you to have this sturdy new anchor for your yacht. It's from the Sand and Surf Iron Foundry of Miami, Florida.
6: Well, I I don't have a yacht. In fact, I could barely afford a
2: ticket home on a tramp steamer. Don't try to thank me, sir. Just use it in good health. And now, with today's next hard luck story, here is Mrs. Bessie Wilmerding of Rolla, Missouri. And now it's time for another informative session with Dr. Elmer Stapley, the word wizard. Dr. Stapley is one of the nation's leading authorities on the meaning and derivation of English words, and he's here to answer the questions that you listeners send in about our language and its correct use. Doctor, we didn't have time to go over the mail in advance uh, this week, so I hope you won't be thrown by any of the questions. Well, Mr. Elliott, that last statement of yours is so puncturized
6: that it's almost hypocritical. You see, a question is not only an intangible object, it's also dead. Thereby, it's possible to be thrown by a horse or any simulated form of human life that's an animal. But it's psychogenically
2: impossible to be thrown by a question. Now, uh, do I make myself conspicuous? Yes, but then you always do, so it's really our fault for inviting you back. All we can do now is hope that uh, you won't be thrown by any of this week's questions, and our first letter to the Word Wizard comes from a woman in Ohio. She writes, I'm very upset about the grammar my nine-year-old son uses. Every day he comes home and says, I ain't gotten no money. How can I explain this complicated mistake so he'll stop saying it? Well, I don't see what's complicated. Just
6: tell him to get a job and earn some money. Then he'll stop saying he doesn't have any.
2: I don't think that quite answers the woman's question, Doctor. Her son is only nine, so he can't very well get a job. I think she just wants to explain to him why it's wrong to say, I ain't gotten no money.
6: Well, problematically, the thing that's bothering her is that word gotten. You see, her son is using the past isical instead of the present tension. But uh, that's hard to explain to a child. So I'd suggest having the kid use a completely different verbal and say, I ain't in possession of no money.
2: And <laughs> that's the only grammatical change in the sentence you'd recommend? Of course.
6: And please don't try to change my mind, because once I've solved the problem, I remain abominable.
2: This last letter.
1: Well, you've been so prolific over the years, and not only did you have several ongoing soap operas, uh, Garish Summit, one fellow's family. Um, one of my favorites was "Just Fancy Dan, the Barber of Hartsdale."
3: Oh yeah, well that goes way back. That was uh, was based on "Just Plain Bill," and uh, that's where the mighty grateful phrase came into our usage. <laughs>
6: Now it's time for Just Fancy Dan, the barber of Hartsdale. As we look in on Just Fancy Dan, we see him by his barber chair, attired in purple corduroy trousers, a kind of beige suede shoes, and the real gone blue hat. He's talking to Pliny, who's in the chair.
8: Well, Pliny, you, you've had your troubles all right. just want to say... We're almighty grateful for what you done. Well,
2: Pliny, it's nothing that any barber wouldn't have done.
8: Uh, oh shucks, now. Out. It's not that.
2: What are you talk? grateful about? Everything we're all done?
8: grateful. I want to tell you that the wife is grateful too. How's your
2: wife uh, feel about all I've done for your family, Pliny? She's grateful. Well, I'm certain... Kids are all mighty grateful then too. And I'll bet the kids are quite appreciative of. They appreciate everything you've done. You okay, just turn a little bit this way. What's right, that you Dad. say about appreciating, Pliny? I say we appreciate it. Well, I don't. What want you've no. done for us, don't we're all, all no mighty thanks grateful. Thanks for nothing, I did. Well.
8: Something that should be said, and I'm well, glad to say it. I'm how's grateful. How's your
2: wife? Is she grateful She's the way grateful. you are? She's grateful. Well, I'm sure she should be, and all your kids too. The kids are grateful.
8: We're all mighty grateful to you, Dan. Well,
2: I didn't do much of nothing for you, Pliny. I just tried to help you out over that tough spot you were getting, uh, getting into there. Just one
8: thing I want to say
2: to you, Dan. Okay, let me get the left side of the your sideburns there. One thing I want to say to you. You want to say any one thing to me, Pliny? Before. Right.
8: I... We're grateful.
2: Well, it's, it's certainly nothing I wasn't happy to do, I'll tell you that. I like to stick my nose in people's business. Wait a minute. Kind of... Oh. Did you nick me a little? Oh, it seemed like I did, yeah. Well... It's kind of flowing there. Lie well, I've down. had a
8: full and happy life.
2: Oh, now, Pliny, don't go talking like that. Lie down on the floor, oh, so...
8: All right, Dad. Hell. We're all grateful to
2: you. Oh, now, Pliny, you're going to pull through all right. We're all mighty grateful, Dan.
6: Yes, we're all mighty grateful. We've been listening to Just Fancy Dan, the plain barber of Hartsdale.
3: We listened to the hopes that were on in the afternoon, and uh, then the next day we would. Uh, do our takeoff of ones that uh, impressed us, and we, we like the the uh, the arch type of writing that the soaps had. I mean, being radio, you know, if it was somebody coming in, they would explain who it was coming in, or if it was a mystery, they would say, "Who's over there behind that <laughs> velvet curtain?" with the wind blowing through the open window. Mm -hmm. It set the scene, but it was often kind of arch type of description.
8: That young upstart thinks he can coerce me into putting up my money for any such ridiculous play as that. Well, he's got another thing. What? How did you get in here? What do you want? No! No, don't shoot me with that gun you're holding! I'll do anything! Don't come any closer. No, no. Ooh! you've murdered me. You sneaked in here, wearing the disguise of someone I don't know, and waited till I was alone. And then you killed me. Oh, I'm dead.
1: Well, your, your routines often start out, quote-unquote, normal-seeming. And then they kind of veer off into surrealism <laughs> um and and that's the thing that that really tickles me um you know somebody will be doing a man on the street interview, and the person being interviewed will say something absolutely ridiculous yeah and but totally straight, and it just goes on from there
3: <laughs> yes uh, lot well, that's how most of uh Wally Ballou's famous interviews work, worked out. So
6: here's Ace, Bob and Ray reporter, Wally Ballou.
2: Lee Ballou seeking the views of <laughs> some passers by here on the street. Uh, Views on the latest speech from the White House. Sir, would you step over here and talk to me, please? You want to talk to me? Yes, I would like to. Uh, did you hear the President's speech about the economy? Well, more or less. I was trimming the cat's toenails,
6: but the TV was on in the other room. I uh, I could hear somebody talking,
2: and the voice sounded familiar. It was the President, huh? Yeah, I recognize his voice in the other room. Well, now, we're getting uh, the reaction of people like yourself to his address. For instance, uh, the point about declining productivity being a the major cause of inflation. Well, sure, now you take the laundromat on the corner. Now their dryers used to give me 10 minutes for a dime. Now it's up to 15 cents, but they only run for eight minutes. Right, if you step over here where we don't get quite so much traffic noise, uh, when the president spoke of productivity- Well, I understood him perfectly and I agree. Now you take the elastic in my shorts, it never gets dry in eight minutes, uh-huh. so I'm stuck for an extra 15 cents, right? Yeah, I guess so. Now, the president also talked about cutting back foreign imports. Well, look,
6: uh, let me finish my thought on this productivity thing. See, my sister-in-law owns one of those donut shops where they got a machine in the window that makes the
2: donuts. Well, I'm sure your sister-in-law has her problems with the economy, too, but what She's we want... no problems. I've got problems. I work there. I sprinkle the chocolate sprinkles on the donuts as they go by. Well, I know. We were talking about things like Japanese automobiles. uh... Well, look,
6: uh, what I'm telling you is that my sister-in-law speeded up the machine last week, and I still get paid the same,
2: you know? Now, is this justice? (laughs) No, I suppose not, but does that mean you agree or disagree with the president about declining productivity causing inflation?
6: Well, uh, let me put it this way. In our parents' time, should a man like me who's at the peak of his earning power, Had to go around with damp elastic in his shorts.
2: <laughs> Did you say you heard the speech or not?
6: Part of it from the other room. My TV's in the kitchen. But like I say, I was tripping
2: the cat's toenails, and you don't want toenails flying around the kitchen. No, you know. don't. And I appreciate getting sure. your thoughtful insight on the president's address, and this is Wally baloo sending it back to our main studio.
1: Oh, another one of my favorites is uh, Tippy the Wonder Dog. Yeah. And, and I know that we all, well... I remember Rin Tin Tin. Yeah. Um, and I assume that's where the, roughly where that came from. Or Lassie. And now, Mushies,
2: the great cereal that gets soggy even without milk or cream, brings you another exciting story of adventure starring Tippy, the Wonder Dog. <coughs> As we look in on the isolated cabin of Grandpa Witherspoon today, we find that floodwaters are raging through the valley. Gramps has climbed to the very peak of the roof and is clinging desperately to the chimney. Meanwhile, little Jasper stands nearby, looking out at the muddy river. Suddenly, he turns and speaks. The water's still rising, Gramps. Concerned all, I know the water's still rising. That fool dog of yours we sent for help will never get through. He's probably up in one of those trees right now, just sitting it out. Oh, Tippy never quits. When well, I send him out on a
6: vital mission, Gramps, he's the bravest, the smartest dog in the whole wide world.
2: Well, concern it all, we sent him out with a note tied around his neck when the water was only ankle deep. That was a week ago. Don't worry, Gramps. I know you can't swim, and you wouldn't last two
6: minutes in the raging water, but tippy will save you. He's the finest The smartest dog in the whole wide world.
2: Well, consarn it all, where is he? Ahoy! I think I see him now.
6: I'll make my way down to the edge of the roof and help him up here. Hey, Tippy, Tippy, Tippy. Consarn it all, he didn't even swim over this way. Well, that wasn't Tippy after all, Gramps. It was the Logan's Terrier swimming home from the Red Cross with more blood
2: plasma. it all every other dog in the neighborhood can go on a simple errand in an emergency, but that fool Tippy's just got himself lost someplace.
6: He's not lost, Gramps, but you specified in the note you tied around his neck that you wanted to be rescued by a helicopter, and Tippy may have had to swim clear out to the airport to find one. But he'll make it. He's the greatest, the smart... Well, Wait, here he comes now. I'll give him a hand. Hey, Tippy, Tippy, Tippy. Concern it all, he swam right by. Yeah, that wasn't Tippy. It was that new puppy they've got up at the Osmo place.
2: He was swimming home with some typhoid serum. Concerned it all, that pup can't be more than a month old. He's already doing errands we could never train Tippy to do.
6: Oh, don't say that, Grabs. Tippy's the grandest, the smartest dog in the whole wide world. Look over there. He's coming for sure now. I'll help him up here. That's it, Tippy. Shake yourself off good, fine old dog. Well, consarn it all, the dog's back, but where's the helicopter? Hey, just a minute. Tippy's got a different note around his neck. It's from the helicopter pilot. And listen to what it says.
2: Your dog bit me, so I threw him out of the plane. Consarn it all, if we come out of this alive, that dog's going straight to the
6: pound. But don't you understand, Gramps? Tippy wouldn't have gotten that excited if he hadn't heard the engine misfiring. And I'll bet he was just trying to make the pilot throw him out so he could swim home and let us know the plane wasn't safe. Didn't
2: I tell you, he's the brightest, the smartest dog in the whole wide world. Today's thrilling story has been brought to you by Mushies, the great new cereal that gets soggy even without milk or cream. Join us again soon for more exciting adventures of Tippy the Wonder Dog.
3: I have to give uh, credit now to some of the writers that we've had. Tom Cook wrote uh, the Tippy things. So a lot of those continued features things he created, uh, either from something that we had inspired him to do or something he thought up himself. A great many of them were his, and, and his writing was a perfect uh, match for our performance. So uh, he deserves as, as much credit for the laughs out of uh, Gathering Dusk
1: and uh,
3: all, And Tippy, you mentioned, and quite a few. Most of the scripted stuff at the time, uh, over
2: the longest length of time, was by Tom. And now, the Whippet Motor Car Company, observing the 45th anniversary of its disappearance, brings you another episode of The Gathering Dusk. The heartwarming story of a girl who fights against unhappiness with the only weapon she has, confusion. As we look in on the Bessinger household today, Edna is slowly sinking into the sunken living room. It's early afternoon. And Dr. Stahlheit, the village chiropodist, is just arriving. Oh, it's you,
5: village chiropodist Stahlheit. It was kind of you to make a house call just because I mentioned over the phone that a human life would go down the drain if you didn't. I do hope you didn't have to leave a waiting room full of patients just sitting there with untreated feet.
2: (laughs) No. In fact, uh, this is the one day of the week I don't even go to the office, Miss Passenger. I like to get away now and then for a few holes of golf.
5: Well, it seems terribly unethical for a chiropodist to play golf. The example you set just encourages our young people to go out and
2: develop sore feet. Oh, I don't think walking around a golf course ever hurt anybody, Miss Bessinger. It might even do our young people some good to get out in the fresh air for a little exercise.
5: Well, I never... Now you're trying to get a whole new generation up on its feet because, you know, that's how the trouble always begins. (laughs) It's really my own foot disorder that has me in such a dither. I've been hobbling around the house ever since I got up this morning, and the way my feet are killing me, I'm just scared silly that I soon won't be able to walk at all.
2: Well, I'm not too surprised that you're having foot trouble, Miss Passenger. I noticed as soon as I came in that you tried to jam your feet into a pair of bronzed baby shoes
5: crime and net I do believe that's what I've done, village Chiroff at stall height. I keep them on the bedstand, right next to my carpet slippers, and I'm so punchy when I first get up in the morning that I must have put on the wrong pair without realizing it. Well, you can't imagine what a relief it is to know that all my problems would vanish if I would just wore shoes that were 15 sizes larger. I almost feel as if I'm no
1: longer standing in the gathering dusk. Uh, a lot of your characters have funny names. Yeah, Harlow P. Whitcomb, Neville Putney. The, are those people that you grew up around, or are those uh, from a name book?
3: We we tried to get names that that in themselves were were okay. You could find a lot of them in a the phone book, actually. Although we 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 didn't look in the phone book for names, but if we made one up sooner or later we'd find somebody with that name. We found about 35 Wally Baloo's as we travel around <laughs> the country.
1: Well, that's amazing.
3: And a lot of them in newsrooms. No. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, a lot of the characters that you've played are experts who are imbeciles. Yeah. <laughs> Ex- right. So-called experts who give yeah. the most crazy advice. You know, some Somebody calls in and says they have a tree growing out of their head, and he calmly gives them advice on how to prune it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess you've you've played some female roles, but I think of Ray more playing some of the female roles. Now, how does a, a baritone? I mean, he didn't sound like a woman, but he did sound like a woman.
3: Well, in the things he said, uh, you could visualize a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh. Uh. As he grew grew older, uh, and the, the voice got even deeper than he was to begin with, but he would he would do a, a Mary backstage character, the the character Mary backstage, practically in his own voice. But I I could tell when he was replying to something I said as Harry or one of the other other characters. I could tell that he was. He was
1: Mary.
2: Hey, Mary, why don't you give us that hit song that uh, you did in the show? Oh, no, you won't want to hear me. Sure we do, oh, Mary. Everybody all right. does. Sure we do. I'll accompany you with the piano, Mary.
5: Good. Go ahead, Mary. And remember, it. you're doing it for all of us.
8: Sing, all right, Mary. Greg.
5: Maybe just one chorus or so.
3: The, the soaps, I think, fascinated us, and the, and the game shows. Well, whenever a quiz show made news, like the Payola uh, the years, there when they were giving them the answers, we would do takeoffs of that particular show, and, and those, those we usually had left.
2: This time, Miss Ross, and this is the deciding word for you. From, uh, your word is propinquity, or a uh, nearness. Propinquity. Propinquity.
7: Well. well. How come he got who and I get let, words like that? Let me like remind that. you, you
2: pick the word yourself, ma'am. Let's play the game fairly. i never good heard sports. What's it mean? It, it means a nearness or a... Propinquity.
7: Propinquity.
2: P-R-O-P-I-N-G looks like a G sometimes when waves, oh, some H, people write. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's uh, wrong, though, the way you spelled it, so I'm afraid you're out, Miss Ross, but oh, our congratulations pink, on putting up a good fight. I and didn't let's... put up any good
7: fight. I'm just trying to
2: save my skin. Let's move now to the regional champion from the South being represented uh, by proxy, Mr. <laughs> uh, Benjamin Franklin. Uh-huh. I uh, go along
7: with Miss Ross to a degree. It sure. seems like she and I uh, do the long straws more well, or less. Well, you did get a difficult word Harrison. as
2: opposed to yeah. an easy one for Mister. Revere in the first round. Oh, I'll take Let's my see chance. if you do any better this time, sir. Oh. Okay, sir. You have chosen the word proximity. Proximity. Closeness. Closeness. Go right That's ahead. That's a
7: pretty difficult word too.
2: Go ahead, Mister. Franklin. Proximity. P-R-O-X. I-M-I-T. No, you were going. No, no, you were going to spell it wrong. I could tell. Uh, P-R-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y would be your word, and that leads you, you, you out You could tell
7: he was going to spell it and wrong. You if, had that
2: uh, the that buzzer that going before Coast, he got out two
7: letters. If I for don't a West know West Coast what's champion, going on Mr. Here. Paul
2: G. Revere can spell his word correctly. He remains. so loses there, Mr. <laughs> Elliott? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They are, Mr. Revere. Yeah. Word you have chosen is far, the opposite of near.
7: Well, wait a minute.
2: Go ahead, Mr. Uh, Revere, if you will. Are you related or what? Please, Miss Ross, sir, be polite. F.A.R. That is right, and I want to congratulate you.
1: That brings me to a question about the difference between then and now. And these questions are always, you know, a little mushy. But uh, how would you characterize either humor or comedy? Then versus now, what, what trends have you seen? Uh, what's the change in sensibility?
3: Well, the uh, the most obvious is that uh, comedians, as a as a group, uh, seem to be much freer today uh, than they were when when we were on. Uh, they, the the humor is. So much of it is in, uh, of a sexual nature now or a, uh, a debatable thing. We never got into anything that was well, too political. We did political stuff, but it was general. And I, Today, I mean, I think, and, and the uh, use of, of uh, cussing, and uh, I, we were brought up as radio people were, to be our own uh, editors and to have a sense of what was acceptable and what wasn't. And uh, we never did anything blue in our 50 ideas of working, uh, and we found we could get big laughs with the uh, just stuff that was, Funny in its character, or in the lines, or I don't know what made it funny. except uh, it turned out pretty well. But I, I think in general, uh, I don't mean that comedy today isn't funny. I, I don't watch a great many shows. But I certainly laughed at at Seinfeld. That was a favorite. And uh, uh, stand-up guys, I like a guy from Boston that that. Uh, has a very droll uh, sense of humor, Stephen Wright.
1: When Bob mentioned the Boston area, I mentioned to him that it was Tom Lehrer, another Boston area talent, who first played me his Bob and Ray records in 1978.
3: Oh, I was a big fan of his, and uh, I never met him, but uh, you know, I used to have his records uh, with all the stuff we moved when we came up from New York three years ago, and I'm afraid the box would stuff and I haven't opened yet but
4: I'll get to it.
1: Here's what Tom had to say about Bob and Ray.
4: Bob and Ray. What is there to say
1: about Bob and Ray? It sounds like
4: Charles the Poet. Yes, and I've only had three beers. (laughs) Oh, Charles.
2: Now, round the corner and up your street comes your friendly poet-philosopher Charles. Bringing with him a few memories of yesteryear from the dusty, tattered pages of his poetry scrapbook, Charles. Hello, everybody. Once
0: on a cloud, I saw your face. Here in my heart, your memory haunts the sky, of cloudless azure. <laughs> But ever and on, through countless... (laughs) Through countless eons of uncluttered love, my heart is hollow, my eyes are dim, my heels are run down.
4: (laughs) And I'm filled... And I'm
0: filled with remorse...
4: No, I've, I've been a fan and admirer of uh, Bob and Ray since the 40s when they were on WHDH in Boston. And I used to listen all the time, rush home from wherever I was. And then, of course, over the years. So, but I particularly admire the, the laid-back quality as opposed to the comedians, including all stand-ups today, I think, that uh, rant and rave. The favorite, so the usual favorites, the Komodo Dragon and the, and the Slow Talkers of America, which is, I still laugh out loud.
2: Slow talkers of America. We believe in speaking slowly, in forming your words, thoughts, our ideas and opinions clearly. Before speaking, (laughs) we speak. We are here. In New York City. In the city of New York. Attending a convention. Our annual convention. Membership Convention. Convention. All of our members. All 200. Members. And 50. Members. Seven. Members. members are here speaking talking slowly so that you'll never be misunderstood. As opposed to the members of the F. T-O-A. T-O-A. O-A.
6: A. A. The fast. Talkers of America.
2: Talkers. Of America.
4: Of America. America. I know many of their routines. I'm certainly familiar with a lot of their routines. And I can do the uh, Mary Magoon's recipe for frozen ginger ale salad if anybody ever asks me. But unfortunately, nobody ever has. And when it's hard, and you'll know it's hard because it'll be hard when you touch it, you see. You serve it with argyle sauce garnished with pimentos. And I think you'll admit it's a dish fit for a king.
7: First, you take a huge crock. And uh, I fill it with the contents of a quart bottle of ginger ale. Either pale or golden makes no difference. You just pour it in. Then I take a head of lettuce, Boston or iceberg or romaine. And I shred that and put that into the crock containing the ginger ale. Then I swish it all around until it's thoroughly swished. I get to giggling on that. (laughs) It's so much fun. You can wear a rubber glove if you so choose. Now after it's thoroughly swished, I take a marshmallow and I cube it. And that will keep you busy. (laughs) And uh, after that's been cubed, friends, you put that in too. Then I take a chocolate bar with almonds, and I remove the almonds and break the chocolate up into little bits and put that in too. Then I swish it all together, and uh, when it's completely swished and settles down a little into the crock, I pour it off into a mold made in the likeness of a dear friend of mine. Then I take it up, and put it in the freezing compartment of my refrigerator. Now, after it's hard, and you can tell uh, when it's hard because it will be hard when you touch it, you see, uh, you take it out and you chip it into individual servings, serve it with argyle sock sauce and garnish with pimento. Well, that's about it. You serve that to your family and I know they'll really appreciate it. It's a dish fit for a king.
1: All I want is to let my listeners know that you are related to Chris Elliott, who they may know of, as well as his daughter, Abby Elliott, who's on Saturday Night Live.
3: That's right.
1: Well, he is so different different from you perform, performance-wise. Yes. Yep.
3: yep, completely. Uh,
1: He's kind of a dangerous character. Yeah.
3: <laughs> uh, well, you, you remember how he started with Letterman, he put the guy under the seats. <laughs> right. Which was his claim to fame there for a while
1: in doing some research for this interview, I have to admit to you that I found your son's scathing account of life with you as a a famous father. Yeah. And uh, somehow, I don't know how, he roped you into being a (laughs) co-author.
3: Well, I think that's how he sold it to Random House. What was agreed to by Chris and the publisher and myself was that he, he would do his... He would do a, a chapter or two, and I would read it, and then I would either reply or ignore it completely and do anything I wanted. And uh, so there were times when he would get three or four chapters ahead, and uh, I would only have uh, two or three paragraphs to reply. And uh, we did a book tour, and... and that was the same attitude we, we took in interviews on that tour. We, mm-hmm. I often appeared uh, as if I hadn't read either one of our chapters, his or mine. <laughs> but uh, I don't know how to describe it. And he's had two other books since, and they've all been that far out <laughs> climbing Mount Everest was one. And he's got a new one that will be out uh, shortly, I think.
1: That reminds me of another one of my, my favorite routines of years in Rays, and it was called Two Road West. Yeah. And it's two guys. At first you think, oh, yeah, their cow pokes out on the range, but then it becomes clear that they don't know how to ride horses. They're they're treating them like cars, like, oh, mine's, mine's backing up now. <laughs>
3: yeah, well, that was all of, uh, an ad-lib thing that we I don't know how we fell into that, but uh, we must have been thinking westerns.
1: And I remember when the when you stop for lunch, <laughs> since you can't get down off your horses, <laughs> well, you're going to eat it up here on the horse. All and right. Here's a little detail that I that I I relish. You know, I think you ask Ray what what he's got in his lunch, and he's telling you, and he says, "Oh, and I've got some Parker House rolls uh, with rich creamery butter." Yeah.
3: <laughs> Kind of, kind of talk the cowboys use. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> hold,
2: hold, hold up, boy. All right, now, let now me just swing my left leg. left or right first? Uh, swing the left one over and hang on with the right. All right. Uh, hey, now, oh. Wait a minute. Oh, now I got one foot on the ground. Hey, come back. hold ho, 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 oh, ho. Ho. you got one foot oh. on the ground. Oh, ho. Oh. Oh.
8: wish I could help you, but I'm facing the wrong way. Oh, I'm getting hungry. Yeah, I am too. Oh. oh, I dropped hey. my hat. Oh, there goes my mess cup. Well, that's down anyway. But we're going to have to eat here, no doubt about it. Wait a minute, I'll get Hey, down. what do you say we eat on our horses? Wait. Wait a minute, I'm down. Well, all right, now. No, I'm not
2: either. No, oh, you yeah. No, I'm not either. <laughs> uh,
8: do you have any ideas, Texas?
2: Yeah, I'm going to eat right here, sit here where
8: I am. Well, I can't eat this way. My mess cup's gone. Hold yeah. oh, up, steady. What'd you bring to eat anyway? Well, yeah, it's...
2: With them house Rolls.
8: Yeah, rich creamery butter.
4: Yeah.
8: Melting. Looks good. I wish I could get down from this horse.
1: Well, it's been so nice of you. You're so generous to spend some of your day with me, and I really appreciate you talking about the old times. Thank you, Bob.
3: Thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Andy. Bye.
1: Bye-bye. And there you have it, my interview with the great Bob Elliott, former partner of Ray Goulding and one half of Bob and Ray. They were radical game changers in radio and television of their day, and they won the prestigious Peabody Award for it. I strongly recommend David Pollock's new biography, Bob and Ray, Keener Than Most Persons, which goes into detail about their career. Most of the recordings that I played clips from in this episode, and many other Bob and Ray recordings, can be purchased on Amazon.com, and I encourage you to browse there for Laughs aplenty. Many thanks to Mr. Tom Lehrer for taking the time to comment on Bob and Ray for this episode. And you listeners, please call my listener call-in line, or if you're shy on the phone, please email me and tell me what's on your mind. See the web page for this episode, episode 17, for my contact info and for more information about Bob and Ray. I'd also like to ask you to please tell your friends about the show and to visit andystreasuretrove.com to listen to past episodes and view all the photos, videos, and other things on the site. If you feel like it, please drop a dollar or two in the PayPal donation box while you're there to support the show. Bye for now and happy 2014! All rights reserved, Andy Moore and Treasure Crow Productions.